September. Today I want to talk about why I think it's going to be September before we're likely to see any real substantial pressure coming to bear on the Russian regime and all the potential excitements that that may mean. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. At the moment, with all the furore about does Putin have blood cancer, is there going to be a military coup and such like, I think to a large extent this is driven by two things. One is the essential impatience of modern society, that we expect everything to be delivered overnight, that we think that there has to be some kind of a resolution that the after whatever it is, 12 episodes, 16 episodes, surely the season arc should be over. Well, of course, life doesn't necessarily operate to quite the same timetable. So there is an element of that, but there is also actually a degree of wishful thinking, a sense that, wow, wouldn't it be lovely if there was some kind of deus ex machina solution that suddenly solved this, that means we didn't have to worry about how are we going to finance the extraordinary flows of weapons to Ukraine, how are we going to ensure that there isn't some kind of societal backlash against Ukrainian refugees? How are we going to deal with the almost inevitable at some point? Ukraine fatigue that sets in. Do we really have to reorient our economies away from Russian hydrocarbons? All that kind of thing. So, yes, there's an element in which it would be lovely if all of a sudden fate delivered some answer which would mean that things might get better. Of course, they're not going to. But... What I'm thinking about in particular is also the expectation that something could happen this side of summer. Because for me, I think it's September. It's September when a whole collection of chickens come home to roost. And although I'm not suggesting for a moment that September things are going to suddenly sort of change, nonetheless, I think it's in September that we might see the beginning of the potential for things in Russia to begin to change, which again is an exceedingly roundabout, cautious and circuitous way of putting it. But nonetheless, there we are. And look, in part, this is for the most simple and basic of psychological or psychocultural of reasons. You know, August is still Dacha season. August is still the time when Russians, if they have any kind of plot of land, little shed or indeed glorious mansion out in the countryside do that and in a way the period up to that is in many ways consumed by that that thought that there is that particular luxury to still to come you know by september dacha season is over the house has been closed up people are back at work and at that point there's also a kind of a psychological point when they're now looking Looking forward in the chronological rather than necessarily expectational sense, they're looking forward to a winter. For many, that will be a long and rather difficult winter. But there are rather more reasons than that why, why September is going to be significant, I think. 
First of all, let's think about the overall trajectory of the war. Now, at present, there is a Russian attempt at maintaining an offensive in the Donbass. There are slow, very slow, but nonetheless incremental gains. There have also been some Ukrainian counterattacks. But on balance, there is a little bit of progress being made. However, it's probably not that long before the Russians meet the point that in military jargon is called culmination and in human speak would be called exhaustion. There just isn't the capacity to maintain any kind of major combat operation for, for that long. They just aren't the spare troops. They're going to run, begin to run low on certain forms of military equipment. I mean, not you know, artillery shells and such like. And as has been noted, this is at the moment currently in a stage where this is primarily an artillery war. But still, there seems little chance of any kind of major breakthrough. So they may push a little bit, but they're certainly not going to be taking the whole of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, which seems to be their sort of their new goal. In other words, maintaining the land bridge and getting the Donbass region. So they're not going to be able to claim victory. At the same time, look, one of the big imponderables that we don't know about is actually how tough a time is the Ukrainian military having. I mean, the Ukrainians, obviously, they're, they're performing extraordinarily well. They're determined. They have been very careful in adapting themselves to be able to fight the Russians over the past eight years and have done so exceedingly well. And beyond that, they're also fighting a very good fight in the information war, both to undermine Russia's cohesion, to try and spread the sort of rumours and things that could cause dissension at the top of the Russian system. I mean, it's quite worth noting the degree to which the Ukrainians are very happy to magnify the stories of, for example, Putin's illnesses. But at the same time, they're fighting an information war, if we're honest, with the West. And look, this is not a criticism. This is what you do in wartime. They want to ensure precisely that they can get the most support from the West in order to exactly defend the sovereignty and the autonomy of their country. But part of that is, you know, we see loads of videos on Twitter and such like of Ukrainian drones blowing up Russian tanks or captured Russian vehicles being towed away or whatever. And we see very little, obviously, about Ukrainian losses and actually just how tough things may be at the front. We in the West seem to be willing to pour an unending flow, as I mentioned, of military materiel in. The one thing we can't do is replenish Ukrainian manpower. And in that, you know, Ukraine is already uh, has mobilized. Ukraine does not have huge amounts of extra human reserves on, on which it's likely to be able to rely so we don't know. And again, that, that's not me trying in an indirect way to say, aha, they're lying to us, they're not telling us and about, that they're about to collapse. It is just genuinely that that is an information gap that most of us have. So, I mean, in this context, I think what's likely is simply, and I mentioned this already, that you know, a, a, an ugly deadlock appears. There is talk, of course, continuing talk of Putin declaring that his special military operation is actually a war. Gosh, after all, we suddenly discover that. Presumably he will not be then arrested and put in prison for 15 years. But it, this will allow him the unlocking of the option of mobilization, being able to call in reservists and keep conscripts in the ranks. However, I mean, as I've already mentioned, it, it, this is obviously politically vulnerable point for him if he does this. And I think this is one of the reasons we're seeing classic Putin, that when he's faced with a difficult decision, he dithers, he delays, he has trouble actually making a, a choice when all the choices are bad. 
So there's huge political costs. It limits his capacity to make any kind of peace deal, but more to the point, it scares a lot of people at home. Not so much for the kind of the grand existential issues, but precisely about which of their menfolk might well be being dragged off into the meat grinder. But perhaps more significant, we should talk about the fact that it is not in any way some kind of military panacea. Look, I mean, in theory, if one looks at who's, who's called up, the Russians could raise over a million extra soldiers. Which clearly, if you had a million extra soldiers under arms, then all of a sudden the nature of the war is transformed. But first of all, the impact on a Russian economy that is already creaking, and I'll come to that in a moment, would be terrific. But more to the point, look, there is no way that the Russian military machine can absorb anything like a million. Frankly, I'd be impressed if they could handle 100,000 extra troops. Why is this? Well, look, it's because these reservists are guys who went through their national service or their reserve officer training, if they are at university. And then, look, in theory, they, they get called up to do refresher training every now and then. Look, in practice... The basic training, certainly in, in universities, is, is minimal. And the reserve system essentially collapsed, so people just simply did not do refresher training. They're really not going to remember all that much, except maybe which is the dangerous end of a Kalashnikov. They will need, for a start, a degree of retraining before they're integrated into any of their units. Now, the training that takes place I mean, is largely done precisely within units, and as has been noted, that the, you know, the professional soldiers within existing Russian units, have been you know, drawn on disproportionately heavily to send the battalion tactical groups that have been fighting in Ukraine, and in many cases dying in Ukraine. Now, that includes probably many of the professional soldiers who would otherwise be involved in units' training elements. So it's a question of whether or not, first of all, they have enough people to train these new reservists. Secondly, the inventory. Um, what are the kind of uh, vehicles and weapons available to them? I mean, there are some substantial stockpiles, but we have seen that frontline Russian kit has clearly been under-maintained and prone to breaking down, losing their tyres, throwing treads, whatever. Just imagine the quality of the, I don't know, 1970s kit that has been sitting for years, if not decades, in warehouses. And that includes, obviously, sitting through the period of the 1990s, when who knows what pilferage and, and such like took place. So, you know, there is, of course, going to be a question about the inventory. So, so maybe you can, indeed, mobilise a whole bunch of people with pretty poor training, pretty poor equipment, and who will therefore have pretty poor quality on the battlefield. Now, look, still, if you can actually bring, in a few months' time, three months' time, let's say, 100,000 or more extra troops to the battlefield, that clearly is going to have an impact. And frankly, that would, in some ways, give the Russians a capacity to launch another offensive. But on the other hand, any offensive launch would almost certainly be trading territorial gains for huge human losses. Because, again, these soldiers are not going to be that good, and they're not that well-equipped. So you're going to have a lot more families back home dealing with bereavements. So again, military victory, well, not military victory, but military progress at huge political risk. So we shouldn't assume that this is just some kind of no-brainer and that somehow Putin can sign a document and just suddenly conjure, like uh, Dragon's Teeth Warriors from a Ray Harryhausen movie, conjure 100, 200, 500,000 extra troops from the ground. 
And if he's going to do it, he's going to have to do it re- relatively soon if there's going to be any chance of a meaningful summer offensive, again, before the autumn and before things fall in. At present, they're really relying on what we could think of as soft mobilisation, a quiet mobilisation. There is the so-called BARS system, which is a kind of enhanced reserve plus. Platinum reserve, I don't know. Um, whereby reservists are paid small stipends in order to ensure that they actively continue with a higher tempo of refresher training through through the course of the year. But on the other hand, they are more amenable to being called up under other circumstances. It's clear that the bar system has been already been used to, to try and get some extra troops in, into the rather sort of gutted battalion tactical groups in Ukraine. There's also a lot of pressure to get people to sign up, either as kind of proper kontratniki, in other words, uh, volunteer professional soldiers, or even if they're sort of of, of relatively recent uh, military precedent for shorter-term contracts. And they're offering actually quite a lot of money. But on the other hand, the very fact that they're having to push this, the very fact they're having to offer a lot of money to get people to sign up implies that they're not getting that many people. So at present, they're doing what they can without actually having to make that big step of some kind of enforced national mobilisation. But what they're doing at the moment isn't really enough to be able to fuel another offensive in Ukraine. So by that point, by September, it would be clear that there will be no more offensive. It's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that the Russians would be planning some kind of uh, autumn let alone winter attack, given, again, sort of how troubled the Russians have been with the sort of environment and the quality of their forces. By that point, then, we're probably in a situation in which there is this deadlock in which both sides are too weak to win. But on the other hand, both sides are too strong to be defeated. And that's this very, very disconcerting moment. Now, again, this is the point when you, one might imagine that the Kremlin is going to be more inclined to think of some kind of dramatic military solution to try and break that deadlock. And again, this is where we start thinking about the nightmares like the use of a nuclear weapon. But even then, unless you honestly think that by detonating a tactical nuclear weapon somewhere, you're going to get some kind of mass Ukrainian surrender, which I think seems pretty unlikely, the real value of a nuclear weapon is if you can then follow up. And if you don't have the troops to be able to meaningfully follow up, it's not like you just sort of annihilate some concentration of Ukrainian forces and then rush in and, and, and fill the gap. Well, if you can't do that, then basically you're in a position in which you've just done something that breaks a truly important taboo in international relations. And one, it's worth noting that the Chinese will be unhappy to see broken, but for little real gain. So this is where I think we, we might well see increasing sense of not so much disaffection, though it could be, but rather demoralization of the more existential kind. A sense that they're stuck in a war that seems to have no end, no improvement, and only high costs. So that's the kind of military backdrop. Beyond that, well, we're talking about a situation in which actually September is due also to see elections, local elections, gubernatorial ones, municipalities and regional ones, on the 9th of the month. And already now there is discussion as to whether or not the elections ought to be suspended or cancelled in the light of the special military operation. 
And this had been sort of floating around for a while, and we've just had uh, Mironov, head of the Just Russia Party, sort of formally propose cancelling them. Now, it's not entirely clear if he is acting as a stalking horse on the instructions of the Kremlin's political technologists, or whether he's a political entrepreneur who just thinks that's the way the wind is blowing and therefore thinks it's useful to be the one who actually formally proposes it. Who knows? But nonetheless, you know, this is clearly a, a matter under sort of current political debate. And there was an interesting article in Medusa that suggested that the, the key fault line, the key disagreement, is between the political technologists, shall we say, who are concerned that the point about these elections is that it will provide activity and employment for a whole network of precisely sort of political campaign managers and technologists around the country who will be needed in 2024 for the presidential elections, and that in some ways if we deprive them of this particular business opportunity, then they may not be around in, in 2024 compared with the sort of more Silovic, the, the security interest camp, who regard this as a potential opportunity for foreign intervention, in other words, interference in, in Russian politics. Now, I'm not quite sure in some ways if I think that is the fault line myself. I mean, first of all, look, if all you're worried about is keeping the political technologists in business, I'm sure that there are other ways whereby the Kremlin and the presidential administration could could keep them subsidised without actually having to run whole national elections purely for that purpose. And as regards the alternative point about the risk, I mean, yes, I'm sure it would be framed in the sense of foreign meddling, because that's basically the way that everything has been securitised these days. Of course, the real issue about elections is that even when they're managed, they nonetheless become engines that generate and magnify existing divisions and also a degree of public debate. You know, unless you're going to have the most ridiculously farcical elections ever. And the Communist Party could get away with this back in the day when it was a one-party state. But now people will be measuring whatever they experience in the run-up to the September elections, comparing them with other previous elections, and they, and they will notice if, in fact, it's incredibly choreographed and incredibly censored. So, you know, yes, I mean, I think there are political risks. I don't think it's one necessarily that it's purely one in which the Siloviki are um, basically pushing the line of, of postponing them. I think this is also coming from a considerable camp within the presidential administration's again, political managers, because they're concerned, first of all, about a lack of tools. I mean, one of the you know, big uncertainties is what's going to happen with the Liberal Democrat Party without Zhirinovsky. Now, on the one hand, losing that kind of you know, rather toxic nationalist clown Zhirinovsky could potentially make LDPR, Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, a little bit more widely acceptable. But the point is that the key thing is actually how does it play to its base? And the honest answer is no one really knows. Some people are saying that it's going to die. I mean, that's probably the sort of more of the consensus, that the LDPR will shrivel and die. But others are saying that it will actually experience a potential bump. But still, it's uncertain from the political manager's point of view just how far that, and we must remember that, you know, in many ways that, that's an absolutely vital element of their sort of management of the electoral process, how far that particular part of it will work. Secondly, look, the communists, they're now obviously moving into full hurrah patriot mode, 
because they, A, don't dare do otherwise, and that's what the Kremlin wants, and B, because they feel that that's going with the public mood. But again, remember, these are not, say, presidential elections, but local ones. And the one thing that the central communist leadership has demonstrated that it can't do is guarantee absolute message control of all the various branches and candidates around the country. So in this context, given that the effective political management of elections depends not just on supporting the Kremlin's united Russia bloc, but also having at least the facsimile of opposition, but ensuring that that opposition never reaches a dangerous pitch, well, that's a little bit of a harder ask. So ironically, I actually think that we've got a sort of a collection of people within the hardline security apparatus who are in favour of suspending the elections, but also we have a collection of um, what we normally think of as technocratic figures within the presidential administration, the political managers, who are also thinking this might just be a risk too far. And whether they're thinking about the security of the system or whether they're thinking of the security of their own jobs, think that it's worth punting that along. But still, either way, think of the, the symbolism of that. You know, on the one hand, this is meant to be, if you believe most of Russian television, this is going to be just a, a limited and essentially victorious special military operation. And yet somehow it is so important, so dangerous, so significant, provides such a vulnerability that elections need to be suspended. The more such paradoxes get inserted into the public narrative, then actually the harder and harder it gets for the Kremlin to maintain its control over said narrative. But of course, narratives always take second place to realities on the ground. And I think September will also see sort of growing signs of the economic hardships that are already arriving, but much more to come. First of all, and just simply on, on a very sort of human level, a lot of families are dealing with the massive expansion in the price of food and other basics with tapping their savings. I think there's a fair amount of evidence that by September, most families will actually have basically burnt through those savings, that protective cushion. And indeed, much the same can be said about a lot of private enterprises that, again, are at the moment running on reserves, whether it's in terms of their sort of selling off inventory that they can't actually import or make, or whether it's we're talking about just financial reserves. So I think for, you know, for a lot of these reasons, you know, suddenly the sort of the the way of managing current tough economic situations will, will no longer be possible, and particularly for private enterprises, that means we raise the shade of unemployment, serious unemployment, and this is going to be about Russian companies as well as foreign companies, because I think what we're now seeing is, you know, there were foreign companies which had just simply said that's it, we're, we're leaving the Russian market, full stop. And then there were others that actually had a much more uh, conditional uh, sort of approach, that they're just simply saying they're suspending their business and they were seeing what's happening. Well, it's interesting that this week we heard, first of all, that Renault's share in Avtovaz and the, the big sort of Kamaz car plant um, is being essentially nationalised. It's uh, an agreed deal, we should say, this is not some kind of expropriation, but instead the state is buying Renault shares. I say buying, I haven't seen a price, but I suspect it's going to be a pretty uh, token one. 
But on the other hand, Renault will have the option, if it wants, for a period of up to six years, it can buy those shares back. In other words, it can re-enter the Russian market um, at a price that will essentially reflect what additional investment has been put into it. So this is effectively a managed exit in a way that the government hopes will allow it to preserve at least part of, if not all, of the current business. And we've got to remember in particular, I mean, Avtovaz is a major employer and the, the city of Togliati, what one could describe as Russia's Detroit, very, very heavily depends on the automotive industry. So it's something that means that, you know, from the Kremlin's point of view, hopefully they can keep it going. But there's an interesting metaphor here. When we say keep it going, one of the things that's troubling the Russian car industry is precisely the extent to which it had become dependent on not just foreign designs, but also a whole variety of foreign components that it now can't import. And what we're now hearing is that Avtovaz in, intend to continue to produce cars, but, and, and again, a, mar- a marvel of uh, advertising is that they can be called a special edition. Now, what does special edition mean in this context? Special edition means it's stripped down. It means it'll be lacking components that depend on imports, and therefore these new cars may look like other cars, but they will not have, for example, airbags. They will not have GPS, or rather the Russian GLONASS equivalent, and a whole variety of other modern fripperies. So, yes, you can buy a new car, but in many ways, welcome to 1970s motoring, comrade. But the point is, it keeps employment. Likewise, we've just heard this week that McDonald's, the iconic fast food franchise, is now sort of planning, uh, after suspending, but is now planning on leaving the the Russian market. But again, it's trying to do so in a managed way. It's what it wants to do is sell its business to local, one or more local buyers inside Russia, that can then maintain it, even if without the, the sort of McDonald's arches and such like. So, you know, at the moment, what we're seeing is managed withdrawal. We might find, again, come summer, both because of the economic situation and also potentially the increasing drum roll of sanctions coming from the West. I mean, there is clearly a kind of a political imperative that, I will be honest, I don't actually think is necessarily a wise one to be constantly adding more sanctions just to sort of make a point. I think after a certain point, you just sort of, you know, someone can be, once someone is soaked, then throwing some more water on them doesn't necessarily make a big difference. But nonetheless, you know, that might mean that what we start to get are unmanaged withdrawals, where companies just simply write off and, and close down and stop paying salaries to workers that are effectively furloughed. For all these reasons, as well as the domestic one, therefore I think, you know, unemployment will start to actually become more of an issue. Now, of course, the state is trying to do what it can to, first of all, prevent people getting unemployed and will do what it can to try and minimise the impacts. But again, by September, we may well see that the state budget is feeling a little bit more squeezed. You know, at the moment, ironically, in this whole environment of sanctions and such like, nonetheless, the budget's dependence on oil and gas revenues actually, ironically enough, is, is increasing. But to a large extent, that's because prices remain high. I mean, let's be honest, even with the attempt to wean the West off Russian oil and gas, it's still being bought. But at the same time, they are also selling elsewhere in other markets. And although they are tending to have to offer discount prices, nonetheless, it's discount off what is a globally relatively high level. So there's a lot of money coming in. 
But perhaps more importantly, the reason why the proportion of the budget, depending on oil and gas, has increased is actually because of a collapse in other revenues, which again is a pretty stark sign of what's happening to the Russian economy overall. But the point is, over time, hydrocarbons are going to be increasingly squeezed. And as a result, the government's budget deficit will increase. I mean, if we looked at spending, for example, I mean, in April alone, it was up 47% year on year compared with, with last April. So there's a, there's a point at which you can't necessarily easily increase that. I mean, yes, the Russians have considerable reserves still. But ultimately, you can't just spend your way out of the consequences of sustained Western economic warfare. So here we have a situation in which the war is deadlocked. The political process is under pressure with the whole elections issue in some ways becoming symbolic of that. Likewise, the economy is increasingly going to be in crisis and unemployment, you know, unemployment just before winter hits is especially problematic. But anyway, unemployment and general economic uh, crisis will become the norm. I should stress, and it's a point I've made before, this is not going to bring down the system. There is a considerable degree of you know, core stability built into this, but it really will make the system much, much harder to manage and much, much more stripped down, bare bones. I mean, it will be like those cars that Avtovaz are producing. It may look vaguely like the previous ones, but in practice it will be a much, much less satisfying and safe drive. And meanwhile, well, look, internationally, there's not going to be any improvement. Um, yes, of course, there may be a degree of Ukraine fatigue setting in, but you know, ultimately I don't think the United States, even with the, well, at the very least, distraction of the November midterms, is going to be changing policy in any way. And if we see the November midterms delivering a you know, blow to the Democrats, which is entirely possible, and a Republican Congress, I don't think that's going to actually have a massive impact, certainly not in the short term. So we're going to see a period of increasing pressure. We're going to see what, in my opinion, is going to be the crucial issue, which is the brittleness of the system coming to the fore, that this is able to survive, but on the other hand, less able to cope with the unexpected. And, of course, we go back to Harold Macmillan's phrase, you know, what's, what's the worst thing in politics? Events, dear boy. You know, events, the unexpected crises, they will happen. And who knows, maybe they'll come from politics, maybe they'll come from economics, maybe they'll come from the war, maybe they'll come from some totally unexpected direction. But the point is, it's how the system can cope with that that I think will be most significant. And whether or not that puts people within the elite into a situation in which they're having to make stark, harsh choices that they haven't up to now. Because at present, although there's so many people who are dissatisfied with the status quo, the risks of doing anything about it are so much greater than the risks of just keeping your head down and hoping things work out. So it's going to take, in my opinion, some kind of real existential crisis, which of course could also involve Putin's health, to actually force people to make those tough, tough choices. Ironically enough, everyone is like Putin in this respect, that when there seem to be no good options, it's so much easier to temporise than actually make some kind of a tough decision. So that's why I think September is going to be the interesting, may you live in interesting times, kind of interesting sense of the word. So beware of September. But anyway, I will stop now, and in a break from the usual pattern, 
After the interval, there will be a short trailer from Sean Guillory for his new series, podcast series documentary, Teddy Goes to the USSR, which sounds quite fascinating. And by the way, if you do not also follow Sean's SRB podcast and you're interested in Russia, you really should. Back in a moment. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. I had been interested in things Russian all my life and got a master's degree in Russian area studies. 20th of June, 1968. In April, May of this year, Teddy Rowe, born in 1934, is suspected of involvement in American intelligence, visited the Soviet Union as an American tourist. Teddy Rowe visited every Soviet republic in the spring of 1968, and he kept a meticulous diary of his trip. But so did the KGB foreign tourists who did something forbidden in the USSR or simply behaved suspiciously. Uh, this is not uncommon in the KGB archives. You would be tailed on the street. There would be a breaking into your room and you will see that somebody broke into your room. And that would be like 95% of what happens. It's just trying to make you feel uncomfortable. The people were getting into my diary and into my suitcase. And so I printed a, a note to them in capital letters. If you want to know any of this stuff, come and talk to me, I'll tell you. My name is Teddy. First name Teddy, last name Roe. Subscribe and listen to Teddy Goes to the USSR, a six-episode series on Soviet life through an American tourist's eyes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Continuing the trend of doing things a little bit differently, in this second half, I will treat you to a reading. A reading of what, you may ask? Well, my book, A Short History of Russia, um, from Penguin Ebury, has just come out in paperback. And if you haven't read it, if you haven't got it, you should, because it's great. And now, it's cheaper than ever. But also, the release of a paperback version allowed me to add in a little coda on, obviously, Ukrainian invasion and trying to sort of connect it really with some of the broad themes of the book. And a couple of patrons who have already got the book, who are wise enough and kind enough to buy it when it was still in hardback, wondered if in fact I could share this coda with everyone. Um, but of course, said if you haven't got the book, this is your butter taster, the rest is wonderful. But so this is what I'm going to do is basically read this relatively short coda that I wrote. And I should stress that I wrote this in March. So, you know, again, things have, have moved on on the ground, but I think actually the, the core themes hold true. So, sit back, relax, and let me read to you. A Coda. Russia, Ukraine, and the Revenge of History. On 24th February 2022, after a lengthy build-up of forces and rhetoric alike, 
Vladimir Putin launched an invasion of Ukraine. At the time of writing, the outcome of this terrible war is still uncertain. But it is clear that Moscow's early expectations of a quick and easy win have been dashed by the dogged and impassioned resistance of the Ukrainian people. History hangs heavy over this conflict. In the dark smoke billowing from bombed cities and the sight of the millions of refugees fleeing a war in Europe. In the bombastic rhetoric of a would-be conqueror and the confused eyes of the Russian prisoners of war who have been assured that they were going into Ukraine as liberators, not occupiers. This is, after all, a war that Putin justified by appeals to history, albeit his own crudely cut-and-stitched patchwork version, and seemingly even made his battle plans on the basis of his misunderstandings of it. Putin clearly, and rather unwisely, considers himself an amateur historian of note. He has taken to giving lengthy expositions of his own two-dimensional takes on Ukrainian history that have angered Ukrainians as much as they have perplexed historians. For example, in On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, released in July 2021, he asserted that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, blithely ignoring the complexities in the relationship. After all, Ukraine is a multilingual nation in which Russian is but one of the languages in use, and indeed the Russian church is only one of the Orthodox faiths professed there. There are deep historic ties and interconnections, to be sure, but Ukrainians and Russians lived in separate states for longer than they lived under the same government. Indeed, for him it is not only that Ukrainians were not a real people, but Ukraine not a real country. On the eve of invasion, he flatly stated that the modern country was nothing less than the artificial construct of revolution, created by the Bolshevik nationalities policy, and thus it can rightfully be called Vladimir Lenin's Ukraine. While history is always contested and mobilised for political use, it rarely becomes the basis for a military strategy. This is what happened in this case, at Putin's insistence and the result was disaster. The Russian military has developed its own way of war, which would begin with careful preparation, then a massive preliminary bombardment by missile and aeroplane, before the grinding forward advance of carefully marshalled combined arms forces. In February 2022, though, Putin appeared to have not only made the final decision to invade at the last minute, but also to have imposed a very different approach on his generals. Convinced that this non-people would not fight to protect this non-state, instead he demanded a much lighter preparatory barrage, and then the dispatch of small light forces into the major cities. He appears genuinely to have believed that a couple of companies of paratroopers could simply motor into the centre of Kiev and arrest the government, such that Moscow could then appoint its own proxies. And, of course, that the Ukrainians would meekly accept this new regime. It didn't work out that way. Instead, the Ukrainians fought the Russian invaders with the same determination they had fought the Germans 70 years before. Although Putin tried to wrap his special military operation, to call it a war or invasion could fetch you 15 years in prison, in the mantle of the great patriotic war, if anything the cosplay went the other way. Cities such as Mariupol on the Azov Sea coast battered into ruins, surrounded yet still fighting even as its embattled population opened radiators to try and find some water to drink, became the Leningrads and Stalingrads of this war. As of writing, the fighting still rages. 
Putin's disastrous miscalculations have left his generals now scrambling to try and regain the initiative. It remains to be seen if, like Stalin, he appreciates the foolishness in trying to micromanage his war and lets the professionals ply their bloody trade, or whether, like Nicholas II, he feels he has to maintain his control, sure that there is a victory just over the horizon and it will revive his flagging fortunes. It is not just that Putin's take was unscholarly and nakedly instrumental, an attempt to twist the past into a shape that would suit the political needs of the moment. As already said, after all, if anything Ukrainians could make a stronger case that today's Russia was simply an offshoot of their own nation. Nor was it simply that this backfired dramatically, leading him to adopt a disastrous opening strategy in his war. Rather, it was to forget a truly fundamental point. History is not destiny. Even were everything he wrote true, it would not mean anything unless the Ukrainian people chose to make it something. Time erodes all the old realities. National cultures evolve, faiths and ideologies rise and fall, borders shift, populations move, and communities redefine themselves. Ukrainians today, not least thanks to their years of resistance to Putin's imperialism, are more united than they have arguably been at any point in their history. While the medieval chronicles may have called old Kiev the mother of Russian cities, Today's Kyiv is not only under matricidal bombardment by Moscow's artillery, it is looking to move beyond that title and place itself firmly in the wider European family instead. Consider Russia for that matter. Over time, its frontiers have reached out across Eurasia, swallowing smaller polities along the way. Its identity has been challenged and reinvented, whether by Peter and Catherine the Great seeking to open their respective windows onto Europe, or the Bolsheviks framing it as the cradle of a post-national global revolution. It is a Russian Orthodox nation, except where it is not, such as in Muslim Tatarstan or Buddhist Tiva. It is Mikhail Romanov's Muscovy, Catherine the Great's epistolary European state, Nicholas I's gendarme of Europe, Lenin's revolution, Gorbachev's reawakening, and at once different from all of them a whole that is more than the sum of its parts, just as Ukraine has moved on from the historical moments Putin believes he can marshal in serried ranks and send into battle. Instead, stalemated against the Ukrainians and facing unprecedented levels of Western economic sanctions, Putin seems unwilling to adapt and is increasingly relying on intimidation at home as the implications of his war become more clear. The economic, social and political gains of 30 years are being stripped away, and if anything, Putin seems determined or destined to drag his country back into the drab, grey 1970s, with an ageing leadership presiding over a declining economy, locked in bitter rivalry with the West, reliant on corruption and repression to keep the masses in line. Yet history is a river that never reverses, and to quote Marx one last time, it repeats itself, the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. Today's Russians are not the Russians of the 1970s, and for all that sanctions have broken many of their direct links with Europe, and the Kremlin is trying to break more, they know what they risk losing. Tens of thousands of Russians have been arrested while protesting against the invasion, and high-profile figures from television personalities to university professors have signed open letters, resigned jobs, even left the country rather than collaborate with the Kremlin. 
Many Russians so far may still support the war, but they support the war that they have been told Russia is waging. A limited operation, surgical in its efforts to avoid civilian casualties, fought to prevent a neo-Nazi Ukraine from threatening Russia and committing genocide against the Russian speakers of the Donbass. If the experience of the Soviet war in Afghanistan is anything to go by, once they are confronted with the realities of the war, recounted by returning soldiers or attested to by the soldiers who don't come home, then this acceptance of the official line will quickly dissipate. After disillusion comes anger. Even if Putin, in his eagerness to emulate his historical heroes such as Peter the Great or Ivan the Great, the gatherer of the Russian lands, is instead turning out to be a shabby Brezhnev tribute act, this particular episode of Russia's story is unlikely to last as long as the time is stagnation. If nothing else, one should remember how wars have a tendency to accelerate the pace of change. Abject defeat in what was meant to be this short, victorious little war against Japan led to the 1905 revolution as popular anger at national humiliation and hardship combined. A seemingly endless war in which more and more men were dying senseless deaths with no victory in sight, while people went hungry at home, brought down the Romanov dynasty in 1917. An undeclared economic war with the West, one that locked the Soviet Union away from the credit and technologies it needed to survive, ultimately brought that empire down too. Putin really should not have trifled with history. History always wins. London, March 2022. Well, okay, I hope you regard that as a little bonus rather than a shabby way of filling the second section of this podcast without having to think about it creatively. But either way, well, either way, actually, the most important thing is go out and buy my book, Short History of Russia, out in paperback now. But anyway, thank you very much indeed for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.